0: Welcome to Two Cents FC and Happy New Year. I'm your host, Amovia Kugo, back again with my guy, L. Each week, we'll be discussing topics from around the soccer world and giving you our unfiltered thoughts and opinions. This week, we're joined by President and CEO of the Black Soccer's Members Association, Justin Reed, and this week, we'll be discussing the roles of Caribbean federations and the success of CONCACAF and diversity in the coaching and administrative administrative ranks of upper-tier soccer uh justin thank you so much for joining us happy new year how are you doing today
1: happy new year to you as well fellas and uh thank you very much for having me on the show doing Man. excellent thank you
0: it's uh, yeah it's a real pleasure to have you you know the first question we ask everybody that comes onto the show is when did you fall in love with soccer
1: <laughs> i was four years old um it was actually my my father uh unfortunately recently he passed away he passed away in june um but he got my Thank you. But uh, he, he got my brother and I, so my brother's older, he's about seven years older than me, involved with soccer. So I started playing at the age of four. I uh, played for a club called the uh, Montgomery Soccer Incorporated. Uh, they are uh, just outside of of the Washington, D.C. area. Huge club. I think they got like 25,000 kids now in it. Um, and then from there, you know, I, I just took off. I, you know, I just love playing the game. Anytime I got a chance, whether it was playing travel soccer, um, you know, for a club or if it was just playing pickup, um, you know, uh, my dad would take me to go play against bigger guys, you know, guys, sometimes eight, nine years older than me, but uh, I learned a lot. So uh, it's a passion of mine and I love it.
0: No, that's, that's amazing. And, uh, condolences, you know, to you and your family of the passing you. father, um, no you know, speaking of your father, you know, many, you know, African-Americans when it comes to the states, you know, the basketball, they're in football, they're in baseball. Um, so did your, your father have a background in soccer beforehand or he just like loved the sport? How did it come about?
1: Yeah, so he is originally in Tobago and he, uh, he actually played there. Um, he played for Fatima College, which is in uh, like the Port of Spain area. Um, he didn't get an opportunity to play for the national team or anything, but um, he just loved studying and, and, and he just loved playing. You know, So seeing that he's from the Caribbean, it was just something in his background. And uh, once, when we came here to the U.S., well, first we we came, we, we went to Canada back in the seas, um, and then we moved here, um, you know, to, to the Washington D.C. area. And um, it, it's in his blood, you know, it was in his blood. So it's just something that he, he passed on to us, and it's something that we are going to to continue and pass on to to our children. Uh, my nieces, they already play. They're, they're seven and twelve. Uh, I have a daughter who's one. So as soon as she starts uh, walking and and, and being able to kick the ball, she's going to be playing, you know, so we want to keep this in the family as long as we can.
0: That's what it's all about, you know, passing on and, uh, you know, soccer. That's 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 the love, you know, when families can come together and play it. So, you know, we learned about your upbringing, but, you know, tell us a little bit about your about your background. You know, what led you to what you're doing now?
1: Sure. So, um, as I said, I started playing at the age of four, uh, played throughout middle school, played throughout high school, uh, and I played in college as well. So I went to the uh, the, the University of Delaware, uh, played there for four years uh, up until 2004. And then upon returning back to Maryland, I decided to uh, volunteer for the New Carrollton Boys and Girls Club. Um, I did it for about two to three years. Um, loved it, just loved, enjoyed. Uh, you know, working with the kids, and I had actually volunteered before at, you know, when I was at the University of Maryland—not excuse me, not Maryland, University of Delaware. Um, I at the um, uh, at, at the YMCA. It was actually some teammates of mine. They got me involved with coaching. They said, "Hey, you know, why don't you come out and work with the kids? I think you'd be very, very good." And um, after that, you know, I just fell in love with it. Um, so after returning back to Maryland. Uh, again, I volunteer coach and then I actually started my own soccer organization called uh, Quick Feet Soccer Training. Uh, so Quick Feet Soccer Training uh, evolved into a club and I actually had a club for about three or four years. Um, and I mean, this is another topic of discussion, but um, I, I know some of you guys may be, you, you know, some of the audience may be familiar with soccer clubs. But when you have a small bigger club start coming in and they start taking your best players. So unfortunately, <laughs> I ended up losing a club could sustain because I was already in an area that focused in on football and basketball, right? So this is uh, uh Prince George's County, Maryland, I, I don't know how many people you know, in the audience are familiar with it, but it's the wealthiest um, black county in the country. So a lot of the kids play basketball. Um, uh, Kevin Durant, he's from there, that you know, they, they played football. So as soon as we gave them opportunity to play soccer, they loved it. But uh, unfortunately, the bigger clubs took all the better players. But I was fortunate because i was able to transition into just doing clinics so i changed the name from quick feet soccer training uh, to quick feet soccer for kids and now we just focus on clinics between the ages of two to seven i have a staff of about seven coaches and we work with up to 500 kids uh, a year you know all over whether it's doing camps whether it's going into daycares whether it's doing classes after school evening classes so uh, it was kind of a blessing that the club dissolved because that kind of opened up my eyes to say, "Hey, look, I need to expand this thing and move it around the uh, the, the Washington D.C. area."
0: No, uh, that's amazing, and I definitely, I know we're probably going to touch on that a little bit later. But what are your thoughts on like you know compensation for that, like payment solidarity? You know, you 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 find the kids at a younger age, and then you got these bigger clubs that will take them. If it was in Europe, you know, they would compensate you know your efforts, mm-hmm. your club. And then you can then take that money and reinvest it back into the next cycle. Um, We don't have that here yet um, to its fullest extent. So I just wanted to get your opinions on it. Mm -hmm. I'm
1: a big fan of it because you got some clubs that are about 3 million, they generate three to $4 million in say the Maryland area. And then you got your little clubs that could generate maybe up to a hundred thousand. So that's a big discrepancy there. You can do a lot more with $3 million of revenue compared to a hundred thousand. So what if, There was the solidarity payment, which is just another stream of income that can come into a smaller club that can help to sustain a club. I'm all for it. But with that now comes regulation and you gotta be able to regulate it at the state level. So take Maryland, for example, Maryland state, um, youth soccer association has to be able to make sure that they're regulating payments. So if I were to lose a player, seeing that they would have the card of the player, some, something needs to transfer over financially from one club to the next for that player in order for them to release that card. I think that's important. Um, but if the States decide, Hey, we're not going to do anything, then it just becomes, uh, the wild, wild west. And you have to now trust this club to give you money for the player, but what's going to incentivize them. There's no third party involved. So I'm a big fan of it. I think it can help clubs to sustain. It also gives you incentive as a coach. So for example, going back to my program, my program is just two to seven years old. And we have a player actually who's playing over in Denmark and DC United actually signed him. Now DC United has the rights to that player, but that player started with my program when he was four years old. So my organization quick feet soccer for kids gets nothing. He was a part of the quick feet soccer club before it dissolved. And I've got other players as well who've gone off and they're currently in the academy system for Columbus crew and say, these guys are to sign a professional contract overseas. My club gets nothing again. So I'm a big fan of it. It could be another revenue stream. It incentivizes the smaller clubs and it doesn't allow the bigger clubs to monopolize soccer, which I think is going on all over the country. You usually got like one big club and then they want to go into all these different sections and buy up different clubs. I know in Atlanta where I am right now, just talking to a lot of the folks uh, around the area, they said that there's a big five, there's five clubs that are all over Atlanta and they just want to buy up stuff and control the, (laughs) <laughs> the soccer the youth soccer industry well what incentive is that to the small club no. right so the small club could be that feeder into the big club seeing that the big club is now trying to buy up everybody but if that big club is now coming in and taking the players from the small club then that small club can't survive so i'm a big fan of it it needs to happen and it needs to be enforced
0: no i appreciate that you know i, I completely agree with your sentiments you got you know, coaches you know, staff, you know, people that key stakeholders that are doing a great job developing the youth talent in the area and, you know, not getting uh, compensated. And it's not just getting compensated Mm -hmm. from like, you know, to put money in your pockets, it's for you to reinvest it back to, you know, build the next talent, to build the next cycle, um, incentivize the the next kid to come in and, you know, develop. So um, hopefully, you know, as time goes on in the uh, U.S. grows in soccer, there's going to be vehicles for that oh um, I hope so but I'm
1: not very optimistic right? <laughs> to be honest I'm not very optimistic about that and I'll tell you why Major League Soccer is a monopoly they control soccer in this country and everything has to go through them and you, you're seeing it more and more they're starting to now get into the youth game all right MLS next that's what that is and then they're going to now start controlling the youth system they do not want a Christian ballistic to slip through the cracks again Right. Remember, he went over to Germany and he played for Borussia Dortmund, U.S. soccer, MLS got nothing out of it. So I'm not very optimistic about it. I hope something will happen. But I, I, guys, to be honest, I'm not optimistic.
0: Yeah, It should be interesting. But, um, you know, I don't want to we're not changing gears a little bit, but we're getting more into like some of the things that, you're do. Yeah, okay. sorry, that you do. sorry, You do talk about the Black Soccer Members Association. Uh, me, I, mad props to what you're doing. You know, if, if I grew up, you know, besides my dad, I didn't really, and my uncles, I didn't have, you know, a black coach, you know, or, or a black uh, figure in the soccer ranks that I could like, you know, talk to at from a two to seven-year-old age. So, you know, what you're doing is amazing, but talk to us about how that came about. So it's a long story. <laughs>
1: so the Black Soccer Membership Association came about in 2018. Um, previously, I was a part of what's now called the United Soccer Coaches uh a community group. I think they had another name at the time. Uh, so I was there sitting. I guess I was a part of the committee. It really didn't have any structure. But I was probably there for about you know four or five months. And I decided, hmm, this really isn't going anywhere. So I decided to now split off, and I took a few people from the United Soccer Coaches uh, Black Community Group who came along. But they ended up actually going back to the community group. I don't know why, but you know they decided to do it. So. BSMA started three years ago and um, we are focused on empowering our people. We're not going to wait for an association like the United Soccer Coaches to tell us what we can do, right? Because that's what the community group is dealing with. They can't do anything without their approval. To hell with that. All right. Life's too short and we have problems in our community that we have to deal with. So the Black Soccer Membership Association came about with five focus points. The first focus point is coaching education. We do not have a lot of black coaches with a licenses in this country all right not only that we have a lot of coaches with d and c licenses but they can't get any higher because of the cost of coaching education the a license course for example i think it can cost like about four thousand dollars and that's over a six month period i believe but that's going back and forth from wherever you are in the country say you're in seattle you got to go from seattle to kansas city Back to seattle back to kansas city and it's a constant movement so you're not only talking about losing money in terms of uh your your job if you if, if you got a nine to five or even if you're coaching you're still losing money especially if you're from a club that's going to pay you as you coach you're not talking about lodging about food because you know when you're on the road it gets a little bit more expensive as opposed to uh, buying groceries and you know eating at home so there's a lot of expenses. That a coach has to occur when they do their licensing so we're there to support that coach financially um we have raised money so far in order to coaching fund the a license yet because we only have x amount towards that program so if we were to fund uh, you know a couple a licenses then that would leave not enough money for all the rest of the members who are maybe doing their d and c where we can afford to give more Uh, To members, So coaching education is the first thing. The second thing are club grants. Um, There are not that many black club owners around the country. I think we calculated anywhere between 20 to 25, Um, but we have a lot of guys who are doing training, a lot of small training clubs, whether they're doing it as sole proprietors, where it's just them individually, or if they're doing it as an LLC. Um, So with the black run clubs, we support them not just with financial, purposes, but we also support them with any resources they need. Uh, Usually when you start off a club, your major expenses are going to be your coaching fees. That's going to be the number one, your your league fees, your referee fees. So we will help to support those uh, clubs that need assistance financially. Now that comes within filling out um, a grant uh, application. We also support those clubs in terms of equipment. So if they need anything in terms of um, hurdles or sticks or soccer balls or 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 pennies, we will provide that to them. Okay, so that's the second thing. The third thing is a program called soccer to achieve Uh, soccer to achieve launched um, last year. And it's an inner city program. Uh, So currently, we have one operating in Baltimore City because of COVID. We didn't get that many kids this past year. But we're expecting once when everything kind of heals up a bit. um, uh, You know, with COVID that we're going to get a big boom in the spring if the kids, of course, go back uh, into the schools. So that's Baltimore City. Uh, We're we're looking to expand to Atlanta, Detroit, Chicago, and Oakland. Those are gonna be our next uh, destinations. So we've got partners that we have uh, uh, collaborated with uh, in order um, to make that happen. Uh, The fourth thing that we focus on with the Black Soccer uh, Membership Association is a tournament. So we have a tournament called the DC Cup. Uh, We couldn't run it last year uh, or, you know, 2020, right? Because of COVID, but we're hoping to do it next year. This is an opportunity for black coaches to come together. We're gonna make this our annual event. It's held between uh, July 1st to the 5th. So right now, part of my job is to travel the country and um, get more black coaches to bring their teams to the tournament. This gives us an opportunity now to showcase our abilities. Of course, the tournament is open to everybody. All right, but we know that there's thousands of tournaments out there, but we want to showcase the talent that we have in our ability to develop players. And then the fifth program that we have is uh, what I'm currently wearing right now, and the name is called the North America Caribbean training method. And what this does is it showcases Caribbean coaches um, who currently living here in Canada and the US. A lot of these guys have really done an incredible job of developing players. If it's Lincoln Phillips, I don't know if you guys know the name, but he is an ambassador for us. Lincoln worked with um, Tony uh, Miola, right? Yep. Tony Miola, who used to be the national team coach. There's Lauren Donaldson. All right. We are still kind of yet to engage him, but we will bring him in eventually. He's worked with um, Mallory Pugh, So we have a lot of talented uh, coaches who have worked with a lot of the national team players that we see today and are doing great stuff or national team players of the past, but they're not getting the accolades in a Mm -hmm. sense. They're not able to get the head coaching jobs for for the US national team. I think currently there is zero US black coaches for the national team on both the men's and the women's side. If it's from the youth level, I believe they start now at U15. I think they dropped their, their U14, I'm not sure all the way up to the senior zero. All right. So showcasing these guys and their talents by doing camps and bringing the guys together is what that program is about. So that's our five programs that we
0: operate. That's amazing. That's amazing. I think, um, I know, I know L is probably excited trying to find ways, uh, to sponsor the tournament. Uh, um, definitely let me know, uh, when you guys come out to Oakland, I mean, I'm in Sacramento, so that's, that's close to me, but definitely would love to, Uh, get involved in some capacity absolutely Uh, so you know you mentioned you mentioned saying you know to hell with waiting was there like a specific moment for you where you were like you know what okay I'm gonna start it on my own you know
1: yeah (laughs) sometimes when we as black people get together it's a singing it's a singing dance and we just kind of just talk a lot talk a lot talk a lot with no follow-up United Soccer Coaches Community Group for many, many years. Cause, you know, I was a part of that committee, as I said, for five or six months, but I have always been a part of the United Soccer Coaches. I mm-hmm. would go to their meetings, I would sit in their meetings, I would give suggestions. One year they have great, you know, suggestions, everybody's riled up, riled up, ready to go. Nothing happens until the next year. The only thing changes is the city. So you go from Philadelphia to Chicago, but you get nothing done in between. So I said, forget this. I'm not going to continue to waste my time going to a meeting, virtually talking about nothing, and then getting nothing done in between. And that just happened way too often. And I said, you know, it's like Albert Einstein saying, right? Doesn't he say something, um, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? Yeah. I said, you know what? I can't do this again. I got to do something different. So that's how we ended up breaking off um, and forming the five things that we believe are important to us as a black community to move us forward.
0: Perfect. So in terms of like coaching philosophy, you know, you're a coach, you know, you have the, you know, Trinidad upbringing, Trinidad and Tobago upbringing, you know, you lived in the, grew up in the Maryland area. I know it's a very diverse culture, uh, very strong soccer community. Um, You played at the collegiate level, you played at a high level. What's your like overall like favorite soccer philosophy, favorite style, coaching style, you know, what do you like to uh, focus on? When you teach you know, your your kids
1: well as a player i was a defender and i love to tackle i love to get in there win the ball and play in the midfield um now that's kind of when i played at the travel level um i guess maybe the coach thought i wasn't good enough to be able to play you know midfield because you know you need a bit more skill or, or as a forward where you got to have some type of finesse and kind of that uh uh um what's it called uh killer instinct so i decided to, you know, transition into defense at a higher level. But in like high school, I would play the midfield position or or the forward position. Uh, So to answer your question in terms of coaching, what what my philosophy is, it's pretty much based upon technical development, um, especially with the age group that my coaches work with. Um, Our curriculum, the kids have to have a ball at their feet the entire time. We have no lines. We don't believe in lines. Lines is just a waste of time. Because if the kid is only at practice for 45 minutes to an hour, what are you going to stay in a line for 10, 15 minutes? The kids are going to start losing their attention. Uh So we keep the kids moving. We keep them competitive. We do 1v1s, 2v2s, 3v3s, of course, at the older age groups, uh, not at the the, the two and three year olds, but pretty much four and up. Um, So just a lot of playing with the ball. That's important. Um, that's really going to help the kids to develop their technical skills at that age. So that's our emphasis. Of course, as the kids get older, they move on to different clubs. And then, of course, it's up to the club to decide what their um, uh, the philosophy is going to be.
0: Uh, I love that. That's what it's all about, because, you know, um, anyone could be, you know, have the physical attributes. But when it comes to technique and technical ability and tactical understanding, um, the, the sooner you learn that, you know, mm-hmm. as we've seen our counterparts, you know, uh overseas or you know africa south america uh it's that te- that technical flair that they have so if we build the foundation like you like you do um it's going to help the talent you know when they get older and you know they catch up with their body and understand the game a little bit more um mm-hmm. but the foundation is the technique so i, I love that i love that a lot mm-hmm.
1: so, important yeah
0: So in terms of like, uh, you know, you spoke a little bit about the United Soccer Coaches Association. You talked a little bit about MLS. Um, Say you are president of U.S. Soccer. What are you like? What's the first thing that you're doing? First thing I'm doing
1: is bringing everybody together, like the real people who understand soccer at a high level. Mm -hmm. I think U.S. Soccer, they don't have enough people who are involved with soccer at a high level. I think from a business end, they've got great people. They got great business people. Just look at Major League Soccer. A lot of people criticize Major League Soccer for not being promotion um, relegation, but I don't agree with that. I think you have to, seeing that they've tried in the past to do things, but the leagues have failed. Um, so with MLS you know, being what MLS is, you see it's been able to sustain. It's going on you know, 26, 27 years now. So I would bring together more people at a higher level who understand the game, especially on the technical level. Um, I would also uh, restructure um, U.S. soccer just a great deal. Um, I think that the solidarity payments is something that must be approved. I I believe last I read about it, I think that was something that they were talking about or maybe that's something that's in the works. I mean, I don't know, but I think that's something that would be important as well. There has to be a top-down effect And all the clubs have to kind of trickle up to the top. We've got to all come together. I know it's a big country and I know it's really, really difficult, but it's important that there's that structure. And I think that's what um, uh, U.S. soccer is missing. They're missing that structure from the grassroots all the way up to the professional level.
0: Perfect, perfect. So, you know, as 2021 comes, obviously, you know, you mentioned some things that, you know, got affected because of, you know, how 2020 went from COVID and, you know, all the other things that happened. Um, What are some of your missions and goals as as you move forward with, you know, not only quick soccer training clinics, but Black Soccer Members Association as well?
1: Well, uh, the, the Black Soccer Membership's goal will always be to continue to grow the membership base. Um, we started a podcast as well. So I'm leading that podcast. But eventually, we'd like to move it into uh, an internet, like television type thing, where we are going around the country and we're, you know, talking to our members and we're video, uh, you know, taping their their practices. And we're kind of showing it on, on television because a lot of coaches want to learn from each other. It's just one, there has to be that icebreaker. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of coaches tend to be very um, insecure, let's just call it what it is. They tend to be very insecure in terms of giving information away. But if we can be that third party to kind of say, Hey, you know, here's a member over here, he's in California. Here's a member over here in New York. You guys can learn from each other. Don't look at each other as, Oh, he's a coach. I'm a coach we're against each other. No, we have to kill that mentality. The second thing is to bring black run clubs together in specific areas, um, kind of going back to what I spoke about earlier. Um, th- there are a lot of clubs that are uniting, and just coming together, coming together, constantly just coming together, and they're making their club even bigger. But for whatever reason, black clubs don't want to do that. Maybe it's an ego thing, back to insecurity, maybe it's a trust issue. So we want to be that middleman in a sense to hate. Say we have to come together because that's what's gonna make us better. That's what's gonna keep our club sustainable. I'd rather come together with a person who has 100 kids. So say I have 60 kids in my club. What am I doing with 60 kids and I can't grow? And it's taking me years and years and years and I can't grow. Why not join together with the other uh, black run club who may have 100? Now you give yourself 160 kids. That looks so much better from a membership standpoint. People look at 60 and they say, oh, yeah, we got 60 kids in the club. But sometimes we go to games and we only have like nine kids showing up at games. We only have a lot. Well, because you only have 60 kids in your club. But if you join together and you brought everybody together, then you can make, you know, 15 kids per game or 16 kids per game. So that's something that's important to us. We want to bring black Cups together. So as the Black Soccer Membership Association, it's slowly happening, but we're starting to bring people together.
0: That's what it's all about. Uh, I appreciate yeah. you for that. When it comes to you know getting uh, kids in the inner city, you know everyone talks about you know we got to do this, we got to do that. This is the reason why um, our best athletes are playing this. what what's your reasoning as to why you know or how can we get you know more inner city kids you know involved? Uh, essentially more black kids? Two
1: things. access is always one, access to soccer in your location. Instead of you having to drive or a parent having to drive, you know, 30 minutes outside to go pay some club, you know, say $2,500, which some parents in the inner cities, some may say they don't have the money to pay. But if their kid is really good and it's a priority, they will find a way to pay if their kid is playing for, I don't know, uh, Bethesda, uh, you know, soccer club. They would leave the inner city of D.C. if their kid is good enough and pay that $2,500. All right. So with the inner city kids, we have to have access and programs in the cities, but those programs have to have resources and they have to have funding. The second thing is training. The training has to be better, has to be much, much, much better. And we have a lot of really, really good coaches in our our membership base who are fantastic at technical side of things, are fantastic at the tactical side of things, the mental, the physical we have to now improve as coaches in order to give that to the kids. Like it needs to be enjoyable. The kids have to wanna come to practice. Too many times I go across the country and I sit and I watch practices and you got kids in lines, (laughs) you got kids in lines. I mean, if I was a kid and I was eight or nine years old, here I am playing with my friend and throwing water on him and the coach is not paying attention because I'm in a line and I wanna keep myself, (laughs) I'm bored. Yeah. right. So that's going to now discourage me from wanting to do soccer, and I think that happens a lot, and it's because our coaching isn't good enough. We need better coaching education and it and it has to be up to us to kind of teach each other because w- we've already talked about the cost of getting your a license, your b license. It's pretty expensive. And a guy from the inner city who's who who's probably working a nighttime job and a couple kids, he just can't get up and just leave,
0: yeah.
1: And just go take a class for for $4,000 in Kansas City, it's not going to happen. So the coaching has to get better. And it's up to us. This is something that we're working on as an association, but we don't want to take on too much uh, on our plate. As you can see, we've got five programs that we focus on, but our coaches have to make a better effort to get better at coaching because learning from each other, I think, is the best way because you can take a lot of these licensing courses and a lot of these certificate courses And you may learn one or two things, but at the end of the day, is that translating back to the player? Are you making your players better? Are you improving? Are you making it more fun for them so that they look forward to showing up to practice? I think we have too much bad training in the cities, and a lot of these kids are saying, "Ah, well, I don't want to go back to practice. I don't want to play soccer anymore.
0: No, it's, it's, I, I love what you said about the no lines, you know, especially for kids at that young age, like they don't want to be standing around. They want to be active They want to play and they mm-hmm. want to get better. And I think when you say access, I think what I've found is that, you know, kids in inner city, they love soccer. If you mm-hmm. expose it to them, they, they love it. The fact that you can, uh, your footwork balance, you know, and now it's getting more involved, like from a media standpoint and culture, mm-hmm. um, you just got to give them uh, a, just a taste of it, you know, yeah. and, they'll, and, they'll, and, they'll, and, they'll, and they'll bite it. So, right. um, I love those two uh, reasons. Give them. A,
1: sorry, sorry. Just I want to add one more thing. Yeah. So give them a taste of the sport, have them enjoy it. And then there has to be a next step, like our kids. And I, I know me growing up. I love competition, you know, as a child, I always like to compete. I always look forward to recess because recess in elementary school. I was always the best player because I played right outside so i always love playing always 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 love playing so we have to kind of instill that in the kids as well they have to always want to play look forward to the first thing that they do when they get to recess at school is to kick a soccer ball and get some of their friends together that's also pick up soccer and you're doing that during the school i don't know if that still happens right but i think that's something that's important like we have to instill wanting to play the game in these kids and we have to make it enjoyable and if it's a matter of them playing on a team and then traveling and going to tournaments and the experience that you get, imagine being an inner city kid who has never left your quadrant and being able to go out to all these different places, even if it's outside of Washington, D.C., right? Yeah. That's That was an experience for me because I lived in in Washington, D.C., my, my first eight years of life. So anytime I would go out to Montgomery County or, or Anne Arundel County or, or Howard County, I always look forward to it, right? So that's something that we have to, Provide the kids in the inner cities. We have to give them that experience.
0: No, I mean you hit the nail on the head with that one. Because growing up for me, you know, for um, <clears throat> our vacations, you know, it wasn't like we didn't mm-hmm. we weren't doing family vacations to Disneyland, but we were going to Surf Cup. We were going to Dallas Cup, mm-hmm. and it, it it incentivized me to like work hard. So because. You want to stay longer at these trips. You want to make it till Sunday. You want to make it till Monday. So these games and like you have that opportunity and then, you know, you're not playing all day. So that downtime is when you can kind of explore, uh, whether you're just chilling in the hotel or, you know, doing a little sightseeing. So uh, I I love what you said about that.
1: Plus the experience you get right at tournaments. I'll never forget my two times going to, to Dallas cup. We played a team from Argentina. I'd never played a team from Argentina before. They ended mm-hmm. up beating us uh, one nothing, but I think a couple of the guys a- ended up becoming professionals in, in the Argentinian League. Um, so just that experience alone, like it, it never leaves you. That's so true. You still think about that. I mean, last time I was at Dallas Cup as a player, I was 17 years old. So over 20 years ago, like you never stop thinking about that experience, meaning playing against somebody from Argentina or playing against somebody from Germany. So helping, you know, giving kids from the inner city that exposure, I think is important, but we need programs to be able to do that. And the leaders of these programs have to think that way.
0: No, that's what it's all about. Um, What else we got? I know you got some questions that you wanted to ask before we get into the topics.
2: Yeah, um, one question I had about um, licensing. um, I'm not sure how it works in, you know, American football or basketball, but I always hear about like licensing when it comes to coaching, even on the youth level in soccer. Um, So is that something that, that is also another barrier to entry so like you see you know you know ray ray from the neighborhood is coaching you know helping coach the
0: uh
2: aau team team or or the local you know pop warner team but it seems like Mm -hmm. that's not something that you know people can necessarily pick up and do um when it comes to youth soccer so do you are, are those are those barriers the same in you know every youth sport when it comes to like licensing Um,
1: to be honest, I'm not sure about basketball or football either, but, um, I think, you know, of course with, um, you know, like a football coach, he's already in that culture, right? So he's already watching football on Sundays. Um, he probably played the game. So it's around him all the time Mm -hmm. in the inner city, as opposed to soccer, soccer is not around them all the time. Okay. There's no pop Warner soccer games where you get all these people coming together and it's just the competition. Those games are played in the inner city. If you're an inner city club, you have to go outside to get competition. You don't have your other inner city clubs to, uh, cl- clubs to play against, right? So I, I mean, I, you know, I can only really base that on like like Prince George's County. You know, like, like living there for a bit. Um, it's a predominantly black county. Yes, there are some. Yes, it's the suburbs, but there are some you know areas that are uh, low income areas. But I would go into those areas and see lots of football happening, and football is coming to them. So in terms of licensing, I don't know what barriers they deal with. But in terms of soccer, um, there are different things, I think, if there is a guy who never played soccer before and he wants to coach it just to give the kids an opportunity and just to be a coach to do it. There are are, are like grassroots programs and grassroots classes that he can take just to learn the basics. I mean, back in the day, you you had coaches. I mean, even my college coach, he never played soccer. (laughs) He was a karate instructor.
0: Oh, is that possible? Please. He was a
1: karate instructor at a Division One school. Might I add, a karate instructor and a PE teacher. Never played soccer before, but he read a book, and he collected whatever his salary was—maybe ninety thousand dollars a year they were paying him to be a full-time coach. So you know, a, a inner-city coach could pick up a book too. Pick up a book, take some classes. I mean, hey, if that coach at you know University of Delaware can do it. And that's coaching at a Division One level. I mean, he he wasn't a very good coach. Let's be honest. But the inner city coach doesn't have to be a good coach. He just has to teach the kids the basics and let the kids play, oh. because soccer is not his thing. So
2: that's another thing that you mentioned um, about the tournament mm-hmm. that you guys are looking to host um, on a yearly basis. Um, yeah. I think that's a good opportunity as well um, to expose our community to the game. Like we can make it like an event, similar to like CIAA or something like that, mm-hmm. where it ingrains like you know, traditions from our cultures, um, but it but introduced it to a different sport. Yeah. So, you know, you're taking the hype around like uh homecoming football games and stuff like that, but then you're just replacing the American football with, you know, soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can we can ingrain
1: that same type of culture and it really help build and you know make the game a lot more exciting. Um I think we can. I, I think we can. And the DC Cup, the location is really great. It's like 10 minutes from um uh, from Howard university okay. campus so the players can actually stay on campus and it's cheaper for them to stay on campus than it is for them to like stay in hotel so they can get the howard university experience by you know being on the campus uh hbcu and be you know being able to tour it and visit it and, and, and all that good stuff so uh me being here in atlanta i actually got a commitment from a club uh a, a predominantly black club who will be coming up to the tournament if it happens this summer it, it's all based upon covid um, and they're looking forward to that. They're looking forward to bringing their kids up. They can see, you know, uh, the, the HBCU, you know, that everybody talks about. And uh, they'll most likely uh, get to um, meet the coaches. You know, I'll see if I can set something up for them. Um, so that'll be a great experience. So D.C. is such a wonderful city because it is such an international, diverse city. Um, so uh, it, it can definitely be that.
0: That'll be amazing. That's yeah. going to be yeah, sure. Uh, Mm -hmm. I might have to
2: come up for that and looking forward to that.
0: Um, (laughs) Come on up, man. (laughs) So
2: so let's jump into another quick segment before we get into our topics. Um, Two truths in the cap. So, this is Mm -hmm. just a quick game we play um, where you'll tell us three facts about yourself. Mm -hmm. Two of them will be true, one will be a lie, and Amobi and I have to guess what the lie is.
1: Okay. So (laughs) go ahead. All right. So, (laughs) number one is um, I scored 35 goals in one season. That's number one.
0: Wait, wait, at what level?
1: At the high school level.
0: Okay.
1: That's number one. Number two is I played for the Trinidad and Tobago national team. That's number two. All right. Number three is I have visited 15 countries.
0: Oh, that's pretty good. Uh... And you said national team as in like full team or like youth national team? Full team. Okay, I try to get him to slip up. Okay, can Google, see. man? Yeah, I'm not Google. I'm, <laughs> at, I'm at a uh, <laughs> Show me those hands, man. <laughs> Ooh, um, I'm going. Uh, like Trinidad and Tobago. Well traveled. Uh, he said he played forward in midf- midfield in high school before he went to college. No, nah, I'm going. You, you didn't play for the national team.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna say national team is cat.
1: You're right. (laughs) I never played.
2: You definitely would have brought that up.
1: I would have brought that through.
0: (laughs) Sure. I I remember because you said, like, right after college, he moved back to um, uh, start volunteering. So I was like, wait, he still played? So I was trying to figure out. Yeah. That was a good one. Almost got us. Yeah. Yeah,
2: That's a good good segue, too. Um, Speaking of Trinidad and Tobago. I came across the video you posted on Instagram mm-hmm. where you are explaining the failures of the Caribbean associations and how that affects black coaches, mm-hmm. but also how it affects CONCACAF as a whole. So can you share your thoughts about around that and kind of, you know, tell it, tell us what's going on with there?
1: Yeah. So the Caribbean is something that's uh, a region that's in, a very, very important to me. Um, as I mentioned, uh, my dad was from uh, Trinidad and Tobago and my mom is from there as well. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the region, uh, whether it's speaking with uh, football associations, whether it's visiting, whether it's talking to the people, whether it's talking to the grassroots coaches, I spent a lot of time uh, in that region. But the thing that disappoints me the most is just how they treat football. They, They just don't treat it with the respect that they need to treat it with in order to help us as myself as a coach slash administrator who's outside of the country. There should be an opportunity for me to be able to apply for a position at say the Jamaica football federation or the Trinidad and Tobago football association, because I do have experience in coaching and administration. The problem is there are no positions and there are no positions in particularly those, um, associations and and, and pretty much the rest of them because they have no structure. So when you have no structure and no organization, you can't create opportunities for for (laughs) anybody else. Right. For many years, the Trinidad and Tobago Football Association was run under Jack Warner and some people like Jack, some people don't like him too much, but I think the problem with Jack is that he never set up the association for long term success. And I don't know if you guys have followed what's happened within the last year when FIFA came in with the um, normalization committee in order to kick out the elected officials, which I disagreed with and they brought in someone from Trinidad and Tobago to normalize things. They ended up giving money, I think something in the millions, I think about $2 million, US dollars, in order for them to pay off the debt because the TTFA had been in debt by $60 TT million. So they're slowly starting to pay off, slowly starting to pay off. But why is that a problem? The, The TTFA has been around since 1908, over 100 years. They've been a part of FIFA, I think, since the 60s or the 70s. You tell me you've had that long to get your shit together, excuse my language. Hope I can curse on this show. And (laughs) you've had that many years to get your shit together. And this is the situation that you're in. And the longer you stay in these situations, the more it's worse, not just for us as black administrators and coaches to get opportunities, the worse it is for CONCACAF. Look at the United States. I think their structure is excellent in terms of business. Yes, we may say on the field for the men's side, they're not very good or they're getting better. I see that they have a nice crop of young players who are coming in who could potentially qualify for 2022, but they've got structure. But it took a while for them to get that structure. And it took a while for the men's team to get to the level that they're at right now. There are opportunities in U.S. soccer. I can go online right now, and if I want to apply for a position in U.S. soccer, I might not get it, but but I can apply for it. With the TTFA, the JFF, the Barbados Football Association, you can't do anything. There's nothing like that. There's no opportunities. So going back to the U.S., the U.S. men's team has never won a World Cup, as we know. Mexico has never won a World Cup. They've won on, well, not the U.S., but Mexico has won at the U-17 level before, right? Or I think like the U-20s as well. But the reason why, when they get to play against those European clubs from France, Netherlands, England, they can't compete and they can't compete because of the competition they're getting in the Caribbean. The competition is weak and it's weak because the structure is weak. Same thing with the U.S. The U.S. may look good in CONCACAF. They may be beating these teams nine, nothing, six nothing, whatever. But when you get to Europe, you can't beat those teams. When you get to South America, you can't beat those teams because the competition in CONCACAF is weak. Competition makes you better. (laughs) Competition makes everybody better. So the longer the Caribbean nations continue to stay poor in terms of their structure from a business standpoint, in terms of their technical abilities, it always seems like the guy who gets the coaching position is the guy who's friends with the president Mm -hmm. or somebody knows somebody. It's never the most it's it's never the person that's the most qualified that gets the job. And that's a problem. The person most qualified should get the job and it should be someone from that country. Trinidad right now has a guy from uh, England who's coaching the national team. He's lived in Trinidad for some time. He's married to uh, a Trinidadian, but he doesn't understand the culture. So there's no way you can coach that team. And there's no way that those players are going to ever respect or even understand you. But that guy was hired because he was friends with a friend with a friend. That's how, that's how it happens down there. And it's so frustrating because, You've got a lot of coaches of Caribbean descent who are here in the United States who've got their A licenses, who go overseas, they go to Spain, they go to to the Netherlands and they get all these different licenses. They coach, they coach, they coach, but only here in the United States, all they can do is coach uh, under 12 team. But these guys are overqualified for that. But they can't go back to the Caribbean and get a job because they don't know if they're going to get paid. (laughs) Are you going to leave your family? If you got two kids and a wife, are you going to leave your family and go down to the Caribbean hoping to get paid when you got bills to pay back home? Nobody's going to do that. I won't do that. So you can't even trust that process. Another issue with the Caribbean is transparency. You almost got to like piece articles together to kind of understand what the hell is going on. You got to read something in Europe and then you got to translate something from another language from another country about issues in order to figure out what's going on. There's no transparency. So U.S. soccer, you can go online to their 501C3, you can go to GuideStar and there's information there. It shows how much revenue U.S. soccer brought in. I think the most recent one, I think, is like 2019. Right. They haven't done their uh, audit for, for, for 2020 yet, so it's not posted, but it's there. Whether the numbers are true or not, I don't know, but it's there in the Caribbean. There's no transparency to finances. And that's crazy because a lot of these associations get money from the ministry of Sport. the ministry of sport gets money from the government. The government gets money from the public, from taxpayers. So there should be some accountability. Those taxpayers need to know where's their money going. That money goes to the government. The government gives it to the ministry of sport. The ministry of sport gives it to an association where one guy is calling the shots. Most times there's no board. Who is accountability? You know, so that's what gets me riled up and that's what gets me frustrated because the go back opportunity. Like there's so many coaches and administrators and, and, and even players in our association who I would love to send to the Caribbean, but I'm not gonna send them. I'm not gonna recommend them. I'm not gonna have a guy leave his family and go down to Jamaica and not know if you're gonna get paid. All right, Hugh Menzies, for example, Hugh took the women's team to the 2019 World Cup, right? He brought the team up to Florida, right? He's the executive director at um, Florida craze. He brought the team up to Florida. He worked with them. He trained them. He brought in players all over the United States with uh, Jamaican descent, took them to the world cup. They even scored a goal <laughs> against Italy, I think, right. Mm-hmm. So, so they got one goal in a big World Cup competition for the first time, Jamaica or any Caribbean uh, um, women's team ever made it to the tournament. Scoring a goal at the World Cup is a good accomplishment and it's a great accomplishment. But what happened after, as soon as you came back, you and Lauren Donaldson, who was the assistant, they never got paid. They never got paid. Even the women's team, even the players, it took them months upon months upon months I think probably a year or so to finally get some type of money. That's a lack of structure. Like who wants to be in that environment? I wouldn't want to be in that environment. Not knowing when you're going to get paid. The Soka warriors, Trinidad and Tobago, 2006, they qualified for the world cup. You know how long those players had to wait to get money? I think it was like six years, six years.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) Six years to finally get paid. Who wants to be in that environment? Not me. I don't think you guys will want to be in that environment. So again, the, the, the more the structure continues to fall behind and lag, the less opportunities there are for us as black coaches. I'm just tired of seeing a lot of you know members or even personal friends of mine who are in their 60s, 65 years old. And these guys are far too qualified to be youth coaches, far too qualified, but that's the only opportunity they're going to get. At 65 you're a bit too old for college unless you've already had experience coaching you're not going to get an opportunity uh, at the um at the uh, uh mls level the united soccer um the u.s national team not going to get an opportunity there neither the nwsl not going to get an opportunity there neither so where are the opportunities yeah the opportunity should be in the Caribbean, but that's what frustrates me about it because they have no structure. There's no opportunities. And that's what's ruining this region.
0: The thing about it is too, because, you know, you have, you've seen spurts of talent, obviously, you know, the Silicon Warriors made the 06 World Cup, you know, Jamaica has gone to the finals of the last two gold cups. Um, And I, you know, I know players personally on that team where it's like the federations, They you know, they've said the federations a jokes sometimes and how they, how they act. So you have this talent, you have these, you know, guys doing well, you know, whether it's overseas or even in MLS and USL. Um, so you would expect their teams to even perform better, mm-hmm. you know, more consistently, but because of the structure and the foundation of these uh, entities, it, it's not like that. So. No.
1: You know, and I mean, you got guys who are refusing to even play
0: no. um, Joel Jones,
1: like he just recently went from, from Minnesota to Columbus. I think he he signed a deal with Columbus yesterday.
0: He I just know Columbus, knows. too, or Kevin Molino? Which one? Sorry, Kevin Molino. I was going to say, I was like, Columbus <laughs> stack stacked now. Oh, Columbus
1: will be stacked. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Right, yeah. So, um, Kevin, he's not going to try to go back and play for Trinidad, right, under that circumstance. I think he refused to, like, play a game. I think it was both him and, and Jovan.
0: Uh, so, okay. there you go.
1: Those are your top two players yeah. playing here in Major League Soccer don't want to go play for your country. And, unfortunately, that that happens a lot. You know, and it's for a lack of professionalism that's at great. the end of the day.
2: So, yeah. do you think that's also a reason why we're not seeing like the Raheem Sterling's and the Ainsley Isles, you know, playing for Jamaica rather than England? You know, like these players who are you know of Caribbean descent who maybe who may have grown up in the the UK or anywhere else, okay. they're not coming back to play for their home country. Is it because of this lack of structure and lack of professionalism? You yeah. think?
1: Yep. I mean, check it out. Uh, Obama Yang, for example. So I'm going to switch over to Africa because, I mean, Africa is just as bad a, as the Caribbean. Uh, Obama yep. Yang, I, I think he tweeted. Um, <laughs> yeah, good player. So, awesome I, I, <laughs> so I think um, that he was going to a game, I think, for the African Cup of Nations or something. And he tweeted a, a, a photo of the team. Sleeping in the airport. <laughs>
0: yeah, I saw
1: that. I mean, here's a professional, right? This guy's worth millions of dollars, plays for Arsenal, sleeping in an airport. It's a good thing he's a, he's a cool dude. He's just like, all right, well, it is what it is. I'm still going to play play for Gabon. Imagine doing that to Cristiano Ronaldo of Portugal or doing that to Messi in Argentina. I mean, Messi has threatened to leave Argentina multiple times. He would have left Argentina if Argentina treated him like that. Oh. Unfortunately, that's, that's become the norm in the Caribbean. And in Africa, and it's like they're okay with it.
0: It's like I a, mean that is crazy, like, man. Yeah. Like they like joke about it. Like yeah. Before the uh, before the 2014 World Cup, like Nigeria is like refusing to get off the bus because they haven't got paid. Mm-hmm. Or Ghana, I think. I'm not sure, but um, like you don't want to have situations like that. That's, the, that's embarrassing to the country, you've been the Federation. Take care of the players that represent your, your country. Simple yeah. as that.
1: Exactly, because then you'll get other players along the way that's going to come and represent your country. Like France, as we can, everyone has said it France won the World Cup because of the African players. Take those African players out of the France roster and they're not winning the World Cup. <laughs> England made it to the right. finals because of the Jamaican players, right? Take those players out and they may make it to the round of 16. So, I mean, there's just so much squandered. Like with the, the Caribbean and Africa, they don't understand the value in what they have. It's just so much you know squander talent that they just give up and like they they have no idea how valuable the assets that they have or they could have so I don't blame it when uh, when a player decides to choose England over Jamaica or Spain over Ghana or Nigeria or whomever I don't blame them I mean the structure is just not there I mean it's just who would want to be a part of that not me
2: (laughs) For Sure. sure. And so kind of piggybacking off of that, you mentioned it um, a little bit earlier about uh, the lack of opportunities for coaches. So there's an ongoing discussion, especially in black soccer circles, about the lack of black coaches and black, you know, front office leadership at top tier, top tier um, teams like, you know, over in Europe, especially um, here in MLS, USL, um, as well as even, you know, some of the coaching, some of the uh, college ranks. Um, so I would like to get you know you guys thoughts on why we aren't seeing more representation. I know there's some reasons like licensing stuff like that. Um, but what steps can be taken to increase that representation?
1: So we have a um, we have some statistics on our website. Um, I'm gonna try to just remember them off the top of my head, but excuse me, at the NCAA level, I believe ninety two percent of the coaches are white, and only about three to four percent are black coaches um you can look at the nwsl there's i don't think there's ever been a black coach in 10 years the mls going on 27 years or so um there's probably only been a handful of black coaches but there's never been a black american coach ever like a full-time coach i know uh kobe jones stepped in for like as an interim coach for the galaxy for a little bit but i mean i'm talking about a full-time gig so i can talk about the college level in terms of what it's gonna take, uh, because a lot of our members are kind of like on the brink. Um, It's important for them to get their master's degree in whether it's business administration or if it's physical education or whatever it is. Like you have to have that master's degree, I think when you're going for a head coaching job, because that's gonna make you, that's gonna show the athletic director that you take school serious, right? That you're willing to get your master's degree. Uh, A license seems to be the requirement now at least for uh, a high level even job,
0: for, even for college,
1: even for college. Wow, that's what I'm noticing. at least for the division one level, uh, whether it's a high division one or a, a low uh, you know division one level. Um so I would say get the the master's mm-hmm. degree and then you also need the coaching education as well. Uh, the experience. Um, I think sometimes a lot of our members want to hit the home run. They want to be a part of that big division one school. So they're out there uh, sending their resume out to school that they're probably never going to, going to get the head coaching job for. So I think just kind of looking at it and say, Hey, okay, well, why don't I start with the NAIA and then maybe build up to division three, division two, if I need to be an assistant, just kind of work my way up. Um, So I think just kind of understanding that level, just kind of working your way up to the division one level, if it's going to be possible now, Another issue that we have are the athletic directors who are making these decisions. They tend not to look like us. Let's just call it what it is. Right? So they're going to make a decision based upon maybe the fact that this coach played at the school or this coach was the captain at some point at the school, or he knows the, the family of this potential coach. There's always something, right? So usually not the best guy gets selected for the job. So knowing that we're going up against that, it's important that we, have the best possible resume to make ourselves as competitive as possible. Um, On the professional level, that's just tough because uh, MLS is just kind of, uh, it's all over the place. All right, let's just call it what it is. DC United, Ben Olsen was the coach for about 12 years. Ben was a player at DC United for many, many years. He went from a player to retiring, to become an assistant, to becoming a head coach. I don't think Ben has any licenses. or or maybe he does now. I don't know. But that's the structure, right? And if you're a professional player, you stand a lot better chance of becoming a head coach. So a lot of the guys who are members of our association play in the um, USL. So I tell these guys, as you're playing, get your head coaching badges. That's important because you don't want to just all of a sudden not get a contract and then you're stuck having to, you know, coach whomever, and just exactly. take whatever job. So, as you're playing, get your badges so that there's a possibility that you could become an assistant for the club that you just retired from, or maybe even the head coaching role, right? It happens. So, it's making our members as marketable as possible is something that we focus on and something that we help them with. And that's something that we have to be because we got to have a really, really good resume because we're not easily selected. Let's just call it what it is. We're not the first preference most times, but if our resume is outstanding and it stands out to the athletic director or the general manager of a professional team, then you stand a lot better chance of uh, getting uh, an interview.
0: No, that's a great point. I think uh, for me, when it comes to, you know, the lack of diversity, I don't I don't think there's a good effort in bringing in participation in the sense of like, Make, f- making people feel welcome to have the mm-hmm. opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. I, like it's, I don't want to say it's closed off, but I just feel like it's like, yeah, uh, you're invited to the party, but like they tell you late, you know, or right. it's like a, a sympathy invite, so you don't feel like welcome, you don't feel wanted to even right. like, pursue that opportunity. And it's not only coaching, but maybe like front office staff, or even like you know, you know, there's so many other ways to get involved in the sports from a soccer standpoint. You mm-hmm. know, nothing. Uh, administration. So, I think that's kind of the biggest thing on uh, from my standpoint when it comes well, to right, comes
1: right. right. And and I'll say with the front office staff, um, I know I didn't touch base on that. I would say that that's a similar approach. Uh, take for example the uh, president of operations for DC United, uh, the first um, black woman, um, mm-hmm. Danita Johnson. The, the Danita Johnson, I believe is her name, but she ended up getting the position because she went from. Uh, the Women's Basketball League, I don't know what she did before, but she went from the Women's Basketball League as an executive to DC United. So being able to kind of take advantage of, I guess, whatever opportunity comes your way from an executive level to work your way up to Major League Soccer is a good approach. Um, but the executive level, I think is a bit more difficult. Um, but I would say that, you know, for the head coaches, or to become a head coach, You have to have a more competitive resume because, of course, there are more opportunities for you to coach as opposed to being an executive. Usually the executives in sports tend to be for professional sports. Yeah. But with coaching now, you're talking about, you know, you got colleges like I think there's like eighteen hundred NCAA options uh, uh, for both boys and girls. Right. So I would say, you know,
0: build your resume. No, that's great advice. That's great advice. One thing that kind of struck
2: me as you were talking earlier about requirements is you mentioned that like a master's degree is required along with the A license. Um, so I was kind of doing a little Googling real quick. And like, if you, if you think about college football or cl- college basketball, how many of those coaches have master's degrees? You know, like, is it even a requirement for those sports? Um, which which brings another question, like, why is the barrier entry so high for soccer? Like, we always talk about it as it's a country club sport, right? Uh is that another kind of way of filtering out you know minorities and stuff like that like is is it like is it more of more of a systemic thing like it may be conscious maybe subconscious but like requiring having these such high requirements such expensive licenses to get into this sport um i feel like it really filters out like you know black coaches and coaches of other ethnicities
1: yeah i mean i definitely think it is because um as a recruiter you have to be able to go out and speak to families. And most times when you look at these rosters, um, I got a call not too long ago from a parent and um, he's in the Chicagoland area. So he wanted to see if I can find a mentor for his son. But uh, his son is getting ready to transition. I think he's a junior. So he's now starting to look at colleges. He looked at the roster and the roster of the schools that he wanted to go to are predominantly white. So out of a roster of 28, you may have 24 white guys, maybe one or two black guys. I know for me, when I played at least my first three years in college, I was the only black guy at university of Delaware, you know, and university of Delaware is just outside of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is pretty black, not too far (laughs) from New York, pretty black, where the hell are all the black players. I was the only one, you know? So when you are a head coach or an assistant coach, I guess there's an expectation when it comes to speaking, like, you know, the stigma, um, you know, if a black guy talks a certain way, he's talking white or, you know, he's educated or he's not educated whatever. So I think the athletic directors kind of set that standard because they know as a black coach, you're going to be talking to white families to get your kid into college. That's what I think. I mean, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. But um, I think that's why the standard is much higher as opposed to like a football guy. Think about it. Uh, Alabama, for example, let's use them as, as an example a football roster for college, I think is what 53 players. I know that's what it is for, for the NFL. So let's just oh, say 53 or
0: 100. Yeah, it's like 60, Over? 60 to 70, yeah. you know, they have it's like red, high, yeah. red shirts and uh, you know, uh, practice squad within even in the college level. So yeah.
1: Okay. So, so, so let's say 60 to 70, but look at a percentage of the players on the team who are black, probably about 70, 80%. Yeah so if you are a guy who just played college at alabama and maybe you went to the nfl played for a few years you can come back because you can relate to the families of those players you can go into the home and go talk to the mom if the mom is say a single mom you can go into the home and talk to the parents right if it's both uh male and female parents of course right in the home so it makes it a lot easier in terms of communication so the standard to me i think is much lower and say college you know football or basketball based upon the demographic of the players, as opposed to soccer, it's it's totally different.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. They'll, they'll even use former players as like, they call them runners. So that basically uses like salesmen to, you know, recruit young talent to come back to the school. They mm-hmm. will never give them like, you know, uh, high head coaching position, um, but they give them the runner position. So that's interesting too.
1: Yeah, it is, definitely is. Hmm.
2: So, yeah, that's crazy. like definitely, yeah. there's definitely some some racial bias going on it, Cause even, even what you were saying was like, you're talking to white families. Right. So we expect you to speak a certain way. Like even that in itself is has some bias attached to it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And then thinking about like, you know, the bar being lower because um, football and basketball are predominantly black players in the sports. Like even then, like you should still be able to talk to these families at a high level. It shouldn't matter if the family's white or black, right you know right the right. way you speak should be professional regardless right. of what sport it is so it's just it's just funny it's kind of some things that i'm kind of seeing as you've been you know explaining everything so it's kind of crazy situation out there when it comes to soccer
1: right and it starts at um the youth level like just just look at it i mean it took me until i was about 16 17 to finally be on a team of diversity all right about 15. But before that, again, I was the only black player on most of the teams at the youth level. So if I had a black head coach was, which was very rare, I didn't get my first black head coach, probably until I was say 13, 14 and then off to college until I got to college, then uh, the coach was white again. Um, you you're pretty, as a coach, you're dealing with white parents most of the time. All right. So that's what you're dealing with all the way up in coaching soccer, because the white kids are the ones who are the predominant in the sport at all levels until you get to say uh, the professional level, right? MLS, you, you know, I think it like it's 20% black kid, uh, players. And then you got, you know, 20 something, 30% Hispanics. So there's a little bit more diversity, but from the youth level all the way up to college is predominantly white. So therefore, as a coach, you have to be able to be somewhat educated, right? That's the term they like to be able to use. So you can speak to the white parents and they can understand you, you convince their kids to come to your school, as opposed to a, a, a Pop Warner football coach. I don't know if you guys saw the video. Did, did you see the video of the guy who popped the kid and knocked him down a couple times? Yeah, that's the mentality, right? That's the mentality. I, and I don't know where that was. I, I think it was oh. in somewhere, but th- that's what the parents are used to. Unfortunately, <laughs> I've seen so many crazy football coaches yelling. I'm pretty sure at he
2: was fighting seven, after that. years
1: old. So, <laughs> I, mean, okay, really? I go to one coach one time years ago. I say, hey, man, you all right? Because I'm like, why are you yelling at an eight-year-old and shaking his helmet and doing all this stuff? Like, that just seemed to be something that's common in football. So that's something that those football players who eventually go off to play for Alabama or University of Georgia, they're used to that already. They're used to coach like that. So therefore, the expectation to me is just a lot lower for the athletic director. So I'm just trying to look at it from that standpoint as to maybe why the bar seems to be a lot higher for black coaches in soccer. As opposed mm-hmm. to coaches in other sports. <laughs> uh, that's a yeah. good
2: you got anything else on that
0: movie? No, nah, no, nah, that's that was. I mean, I mean, I feel like we covered it. You know, this. Um, I feel like more people are starting to talk about it. So it's like more people kind of break the mold. You know, we have, mm-hmm. you know, you Justin, you know, doing the wonderful work that you are doing. You know, other people that are you know trying to make a name and trying to like. Ex- I don't want to say exposed, but like break the barrier or break the break the the mold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only bound to like make some changes. And all you guys, all we need is you know a collection of people to continue to you know push through. Because you know as as we get closer to our goals, that's when you know the leeches start to come. Right. And, you know, so it's important to stick together and you know support each other and you know stay strong. That's I
1: It is. I mean, it's really important. The communication has to be there. Uh, The transparency has to be there. Um, You know, anytime as, you know, Black Soccer Membership Association, we get into, um, say, a partnership with a member, uh, which is what we do, right? So we'll do different partnerships with members in specific areas to help them out, whether it's, you know, providing uh, consultancy in terms of starting your own club, or if they're doing a tournament or whatever, like we will help them In that sense we always ask them well what do you guys want out of this what is your long-term goal what's your short-term goal what's your long-term goal what's your end goal and what's your exit strategy those Mm -hmm. are important to lay all that out in the beginning to make sure that you are a good fit to working with this person because i think what happens sometimes in our community we get started with stuff and people don't really know what their end goal is and then we get frustrated you know four or five months into it and we say oh i don't want to work with this guy anymore (laughs) or this guy can't be trusted like we have trust issues in our community i don't know why i don't know why that is
2: So it's, uh, uh, it,
1: it's something that's just too common i think communication is the reason why the trust issues are the way they are so i think just kind of laying things out you know from the beginning to the end is the best approach in order for us um to work together
2: yeah for sure um so let's switch gears up um going to one of our our favorite parts of the show uh well, no car card all right uh this is a rapid fire segment of the show where i will read off some headlines from soccer news and Mm -hmm. our guest uh justin as well as the moby will kind of give their opinions based on the soccer card system so no card is um i'm in agreement um Mm -hmm. i'm cool with it yellow card is i can go either way it's a foul but you know i'll allow it Mm -hmm. or and red card is obviously <laughs> red card is obviously i disagree um or i'm not cool with that okay um so let's jump right into it no card yellow card red card dc united is in the running to sign meza Oldsville so now this has changed as of recently as of like mm-hmm. today but just the the audacity of it um let me get you guys thoughts
1: red card
0: oh yeah I, I want you you want to explain first and then i'll go Yeah. Yeah. What?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, DC United, unfortunately, does this too much. And of course, with me being close by and kind of somewhat following the team, they like to get older players to come in. And it's just for names, as opposed to maybe getting a younger player to come in uh, and bring some excitement to the crowd and somebody who could stay around for a bit. I mean, Mesut Ozil is going to stay around maybe three years like Ibrahimovic did, like Rooney did. I think Rooney only stayed a couple years and he's going to go. I mean why?
0: <laughs> yeah, I would say yellow card um and for Ozil's sake because I feel like he can still play like top top level and no disrespect to like MLS or DC but you know Ozil like that's a World Cup champion he's not even like maybe 31 32 I think he's 33. Um, well, he's 33? Mm-hmm.
1: is He's that old? I believe he's 33. He's at Arsenal for 8 years dude
0: He's like, oh yeah, he's been at Arsenal for eight years, and he's sitting so, on the bench right now. <laughs> oh, man, so that might change. uh nah, I'm not. No, nah. Ozil, guy. I mean, if he's playing at DC, it's like who's he gonna get the ball to? Uh, okay, thirty-two. So yeah, oh, he's, he's thirty-two. Yeah. Okay, two, two, yeah, two, three solid years. Um, yeah, no, I'm still going yellow card. I, I still think he's high level, uh, talent. Um, and I think. Uh, dc like for who they want like he's not going to get people out of their seats to come to games i don't think he's popular but he's not like you know a name that everyone knows mm-hmm. you know like soccer fans will know ozil but not everyone knows like wayne rooney um to a certain extent will get people but not ozil mm. so yeah that's my yellow card i'm gonna be yellow card
2: okay all right next one no card yellow card red card FC Barcelona looking into buying an MLS franchise in an attempt to keep Messi.
1: Hmm. Uh, I say yellow card, and um, I say yellow card because you know sport has become uh, a brand. I mean Barcelona is a brand. I mean everybody knows it all over the world. Um, so I think by them, you know, coming here to the US, I know Messi has said. In the past that he wants to play here in the u.s so i think that's just kind of an easy simple transition and they could possibly make him part owner of that mls team kind of what they did uh in miami with um david beckham so uh yellow card for me
0: oh yeah that's i mean that's a great point you know soccer has to do with brand and i feel like messi is synon- synonymous with barca so barca should do everything in their power to keep him. uh but i think it's a red card i don't think barca is going to be able to I mean, they could buy a, a franchise, but it's like, which franchise is going to be strategic enough uh, where it makes sense to have like a Barca, uh, you know, Barca US city
2: tie? I mean, RSL is for sale.
0: Yeah, but yeah. yeah they move right yeah. right. <laughs> Like, what city would, you know, make sense for a Barca run, a franchise in the States that's not already taken?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but I mean, the great thing about soccer, and we know this in London, right? Aren't there like six clubs in London? So no. why don't we had one to, to New York. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no.
0: true. Yeah. I can see like Barca. Yeah, the- enough problems in New York
1: already
2: with yeah, Daniel and all that stuff. So they
0: have a, they have a, a Barca academy in Phoenix, or um, it's true. You know, that Airbnb.
2: could be one because Phoenix doesn't have an MLS club yet. But it's like Take RSL moving to Phoenix. Uh-huh. Mm. No, and they would no. hate that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if Phoenix would like that because I know they got. That's uh, yeah, that, that. Ooh, that was created like a little rivalry too. Uh, yeah, yeah. That should be interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah I true. mean, I think Phoenix is too small of a market, though. I think if anything, it's got to be a big market. Vegas, uh, it, I'm
0: sleep. Vegas.
1: Vegas. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Lots of Vegas connections. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, Okay. Wow.
1: All
2: right. So last one. No car, yellow card, red card. Harry Kane to Man City in the summer. Uh,
0: for me, red card. No, Man City should not do that. Uh, Harry Kane should not do that. I don't think. No. I don't think. Red card. For me as well. mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, red card for me as well. I just don't see the reason. I mean, to go from Tottenham to to Man City. I, I mean, I just don't see what I mean if anything uh he should leave I win some trophies <laughs> yeah i mean could win some trophies yeah, I yeah. Said, uh, red card for me though
0: yeah i don't think uh, harry kane doesn't look like a man city player you know certain certain man. players have like a vibe to the team they're on um he doesn't he doesn't fit the mold for me when it comes to when i think of man city
1: Right. Plus, you can also look at how he gels with Raheem Sterling. I mean, do they gel when they play on, on the English national team
0: together? No, Raheem did not pass. Like, he always trying to get the goal. shoot every time he gets the ball. That's why they, that's why they uh, lost that game in the semis and the uh, yep. World Cup. Yep. So all you gotta do is pass it across. And who knows, Raheem might have uh, fumbled it, but still, like, high percentage. High percentage shot, right.
1: Yeah. So seeing that, to me, I don't think they have much chemistry on the national team me as a red guard for me
0: yeah oh, uh, yeah i can't rock with that one <laughs> yeah Seems fair that's it no justin yo lots of gems for <laughs> there. where can people find you if they want to connect with you uh, i know you got like a million things that you got doing you know, you're in <laughs> atlanta right now you live in maryland i think you said you go to chicago next uh yeah. where can people connect with you
1: so it's very simple um you can go to the uh blacksoccercoaches.org Website. Um, on the top of the homepage, you'll see a phone number um, and then you'll also see an email address. You can send an email to info at blacksoccercoaches.org. Uh, you can also reach us on Instagram at real BSMA. Uh, you can reach us on Facebook as well. I think that's Black Soccer Membership. And you can reach us on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. So you just type in Black Soccer Membership Association. And uh you'll be able to to uh to reach us there. So uh five different ways.
0: So you guys heard it anywhere and everywhere. He will connect with you. Um thank you so much for taking the time. That's also gonna be in the show notes. Um, but that's our show for this week. Uh subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us get discovered. We're about to hit episode 30 episodes. It's crazy. You know, we started with the uh first intro episode and now we're here, you know. Uh, interviewing presidents and founders of companies so it's, it's really great <laughs> um, congrats follow- guys uh, thank you so much mm-hmm. Appreciate yeah, uh, it. follow us on the socials at 2centsfc check out our merch at 2centsports.shop it helps support the show as well as you can see I'm rocking the hat uh, L's usually rocking some gear but he tried to show off his collection today uh, <laughs> and then uh, t- t- tweet us your comments uh, on the show and any topics you want me or L to discuss as you guys know Every Friday, unfiltered thoughts and opinions when it comes to soccer. That's it again. We out. Thank you, guys.